Okay, uh, one quick comment before Dr. Osborne comes again. I uh, just want to encourage you that as you hear these things and uh, that if there are points along the way in which you think to yourself, eh, that just doesn't make sense to me or that's not persuasive to me, or but I've heard this also, um, I just want to encourage you to come and ask. And actually, that's the case with everything we do here at GBC. It's a, whether it's a sermon that you're hearing or other comments that we make, if there's something that doesn't seem right, if there's something that doesn't seem biblical, if there's something that doesn't make sense to you, um, uh, this isn't the kind of place where you're just supposed to take it and be quiet. <laughs> That's not at all what uh, we want. So with these things or any time here at GBC, just encourage you to come and say, hey, can I ask about this part? Can I ask what you meant by that part? I didn't understand this. Um, and we would love to try to try to engage about those things. All right, let's talk about the flood. Come ahead, please. Here we go. Yes. Not only what caused the Genesis flood, but also was the Genesis flood local or global? So we'll look briefly at biblical and historical evidence, and then we'll focus on scientific evidence, especially on a, a computer modeling of this, which I think is pretty exciting. So biblical evidence, we've got ten passages here, all speaking about the flood. The Genesis passage in particular gives us quite a bit of detail. And so I'll focus on that just a little bit, just some highlights there. It tells us that all the high mountains under heaven were covered, right? Well, that doesn't sound like a local flood to cover all high mountains. If you're going to cover all high mountains, you've got to cover everything else too, don't you? Um, and then every living thing was destroyed by this flood. And the ark rested upon a mount in the mountains of Ararat. Well, Mount Ararat's almost 17,000 feet high. So you need more than a local flood to put something the size of the, of the ark, you know, something the size of the Queen Mary, just to lift it, it takes more than a local flood, no less to lift it near 17,000 feet. And then finally, God's promise that he was never going to send a flood to destroy the world. Um, if that was a local flood, then God's broke his promise, but I don't think so. He's not destroyed the world with a flood except for once. So, um, the ark size argues for global. Um, the flood's impact to destroy all air-breathing land animals. And the flood's duration of over a, just over a year from the time they got on to off the ark. The flood's depth covering all the high mountains under heaven. And then God's promise. And then uh, both Peter and Jesus affirmed the Genesis flood. So that's all I'm going to say just really quickly about the Bible. Now on to historical evidence. We know so far of 230 and counting ancient historical accounts of some kind of global flood type of disaster. So this busy chart here, but let me go right down to the key points here. Going down the left, we see 12 elements in the Genesis flood account. So let me just read them real quick. So we got man and transgression, divine destruction, favored families, ark provided, destruction by water, humans saved, animals saved, Universal destruction, landing on a mountain, birds sent out, survivors worship, divine favor of the saved. 
And so all the green boxes indicate where some ancient culture has those elements in their account of the flood. Okay? And where it's white, they do not. The orange means it's partial. And so notice along the top where these different cultures are. They're all literally all over the map. Okay, so we got uh, Persia, Babylon, Syria. Okay, that's kind of in the area. But then we get to Greece, Italy, Russia, China, India, Crete, the Cherokee. Uh, we got Mexico. We got more Mexico, the Aztecs, Peru. We got the uh, Caribbean Ocean. We got the Pacific Ocean. So we got it all over the world except Australia is not listed there. Sorry. <laughs> and so... Um, Boy, and okay, there's a lot of things that are uncommon. Notice one of the uncommon ones is the first one. It seems that most traditions seem to have forgotten about, oh, yeah, it was our sin that caused this. <laughs> you know, we tend to, kind of a human nature thing to forget. Um, but consider it some of the things that are nearly universal. These five. We have a global destruction, and the destruction is by water. You were, humans were saved. There was a vessel of safety. Um, and there's a favored family. Is that coincidental? 230 times? I think not. I think because, you know, we all have a common ancestors, the Noah's family, that they're, although they vary a lot, still there's a remnant of uniformity in these accounts. And in China, a very ancient language, their word for boat, I think, is very interesting, and I think it's reflective of the Genesis flood account. The figure on the left means vessel or boat. Okay, it makes sense. The top right is the number eight. Why? The bottom right is mouths. Well, in the Chinese culture, as we might count people by counting heads, they count people by counting mouths. So it really means people. So it's eight people in a vessel. Does that sound familiar? Uh, that's exactly what was on the ark. All right, now, how did the flood actually happen? And here, this is Dr. John Baumgartner's model. It's called catastrophic plate tectonics. Now, if you open up a standard textbook on geology and the moving of the continents, it's all moving really slowly and gradual and uniform. And the processes we see today are the processes that always have been Kind of sounds like Second Peter, you know, whereas the promise of his coming all continues as it is. Um, yeah, that's pretty much what they're arguing in textbooks today. And so, uh, and so the continents split very gradually, and all these things happen gradually, except their mechanisms don't work. Uh, Dr. Baumgartner has, computer, has uh, simulated this by computer, and it does work, at least largely. And so we're going to be looking at his model, and I... We just got to hear him at the International Conference on Creation this summer, and he's a long-term friend. Stanford, Sanford and Baumgartner are close friends, and, and I'm grateful they call me friend as well. And so Dr. Baumgartner's been helping me and telling me things that slides I should throw out and things I shouldn't say, so he's the Marine behind this Cub Scout <laughs> talking on this subject. So this is Dr. Baumgartner. And uh, he was featured, by the way, what was it, Nine, the bottom one, 1997. He was the front cover of U.S. News and World Report. His contributions, like Sanford's, are, are notable to the point that he really belongs in history books someday.
Um, yet both of them are godly, very humble men. So creationists like Sanford. Okay, that's Dr. Sanford thought, or Dr. Baumgartner, sorry. Baumgartner's model. What would happen if we put Pangea back together, put cracks between the continents where we know they're separated, and put cracks out in the ocean where we find them? What would happen? And so to do that, he, um, he had an idea what might happen because he knew at the bottom of the ocean, the, the rock at the bottom of the ocean is basalt, and because of the ocean, it's cold. But underneath that's the mantle of the earth. It's basalt also, but it's hot. Well, what happens in a lava lamp? The hot wax rises, right? It cools off and it sinks because cooler is denser. And so he realized we've got an unstable situation here. And so he thought, hmm, maybe that has something to do with the moving of the continents, and that might even, who knows, have something to do with the Genesis flood. And it's, apparently it did. So Dr. Baumgartner took the, uh, a model of the Earth here on his big supercomputer. By the way, he was a builder of those 28 computers I was using for Mendel's accountant. Um, so at any rate, uh, he divided it up in over a million different cells. Imagine how meticulous that was. For each of those cells, using U.S. Geological Survey data, he put in, in gold here, density, temperature, pressure, and viscosity. Just whatever a U.S. Geological Survey told him to do for each of them, that's what he did. So he inputted all those, and then came a simulation. So this is a side view. On the top is the surface of the bottom of the ocean. Blue means not ocean. It means cold, relatively. And yellow and orange means hot. So this is day one of the flood simulated. So day one, we see a slight bit of sinking there. The bottom of this chart would be the bottom of the mantle of the earth or the top of the core of the earth, 1,800 miles from top to bottom. Okay? So there's day one, day two, day five, day 15, and now you've the, the basin of the ocean, which is basalt, has sunk all the way 1,800 miles down in within 15 days. Not all of it, but some of it has sunk. And here's day 40. And at, while that's happening, we see on the sides there this hot stuff moving up, which is going to come in and, and replace the lost ocean bottom. So we continue. Oopsie. Sorry, I went too far. So on the surface, what do we see? This is day 25 of the simulated flood. And we see a slight breaking of the continents at this point. And here's day 40 a bit more. Not nearly as what we see today, but it's interesting. The first time Dr. Baumgartner ran this data, actually that's about as much of a split as he got. He says, okay, that's encouraging. It's kind of making some sense, but it's not fitting really as nicely as he would like it. It didn't really account for what we see today. Well, the U.S. Geological Survey was working on their measurements and they were giving new and improved data for the interior of the earth for a couple of those variables. And so he re-inputted all those variables with the new, new improved, better data. And instead of it only moving um, like 20% of its present position, it moved something like 60% the next time. It seemed like the better the data, the better the fit. So that was very encouraging. So now we go through the various steps. Um, step one, 
See the green layer there? That's the old pre-flood ocean bottom. And that's the basalt that's sinking because it's cold and therefore dense. And so it's sinking into the mantle of the earth. So step two, we have in the middle there, or on the right side, the hot mantle of the earth coming up, by the way, can be located today at the mid-oceanic ridges, which are all over the world. That's where it came up and then spread out to resurface the bottom of the ocean. And so here we have, you can see the mid-Atlantic range there, and you can follow that all the way around the world into the Pacific Ocean. It's by far the most massive mountain range in the world, and yet it's un- essentially all, almost all underwater. And so that's where we think where the mantle came up. So step three, as it's coming up, what do volcanoes emit in terms of gases? Mostly water, right? Plus the heating of the mantle all around the world, all this tremendous upheaval, you have the heating of the ocean there as well. So between all that steam and the evaporation of the ocean, you have a lot of water being projected in the atmosphere, thereby accounting for uh, global rain. And four, this is the most important step. Pay very careful attention to right at the border between the ocean bottom where it's orange and where it's green. You notice the orange is higher than the green because it's less dense. If it's hotter, it's less dense, so it's higher. Well, if it's higher, by the time we resurface all the ocean, that the difference of highness is a, uh, by computer modeling is about one mile. If you raise the bottom of the ocean one mile, you raise the ocean one mile, which then floods almost the whole world, except for the world's highest mountains, which, according to this model, weren't even here yet. So it does flood the entire Earth. So where was the source of water for the flood? According to this model, it was the ocean. Where did it come from? The ocean. Where did it go back to? The ocean. And I'll show you how that works in a minute here. All right, so as the, con- as the ocean bottoms are sinking, it's now dragging with it the continents. Well, it's kind of being pushed and dragged. And so these continents are being pushed and dragged, and as it is, as they're moving, this is creating undoubtedly tremendous tsunamis. I mean, if you moved in, a, in just a little over a year's time, the continent's 3,000 miles, <laughs> you're going to have tsunamis, Right? I mean, consider the Japanese tsunami of 2011. Okay, that was very little motion compared to what we're talking about here. Okay, that happened, uh, the, that tsunami happened from earth slip, slippage between two plates that were next to each other, and I'll show you how this works. Okay, here's the chart of it. So notice, uh, letter A you've got these two plates next to each other. One's sinking because it's dense, it's cold and dense, and so it's sinking. Um, but it's sinking a little at a time, and it's so the, the land which is next to it, it's buckled, it frictions keeps it connected, so it's being bent as it's dragged down until finally there's so much tension it flips back. And so in... Uh, D there, you see it, or from C to D, see the difference? It flicks up, and as it flicks up, it flicks the ocean up with it, creating the tsunami. And until I saw this, I hadn't realized, like, boy, that Japanese tsunami just like a slow-motion train wreck. 
You know, it didn't come in really fast like I expected tsunamis. Because a lot of the tsunamis I was thinking, it was like you hit the side of the table, and it, the wave is really fast. But in this case, it's pushed up. So it's not coming so fast. But at any rate. So check out this Japanese tsunami. There's a seawall being overwhelmed by this lifting. The water was lifted 23 feet. And so as it's lifted, here it comes. And here it comes more. And so it killed almost 20,000 people. And it destroyed almost 100, over 100,000 buildings. And it moved inland six miles. And it moved elevation, get this, over 100 feet. So that would be quite a small tsunami compared to, theoretically, what moving continents 3,000 miles would do. So this is Dr. Uh, Baumgartner's recent model here. And we're going from day 60 to day 130 right now. Every little clip there is three hours. The little arrows are the tsunamis nailing the shoreline and now we start to see the beginning of the splitting of the continents here. And the colors are indicating depth of how far underwater these continents are at various places at various times. So now you can see the continents really starting to form near the, and there we go, uh, day 140 of the flood, of a year-long flood. So that was just presented at the his presentation this last summer, and we ooed and awed over that, and so I'm glad I could show that to you. And so, the point of the tsunamis is they're, they're hamming the shoreline. That appears to be the source of sediments that then later on, or through the flood, then were cast across the continents, forming the great sedimentary rock layers we see today. So they were from the shoreline, from pulverizing the shoreline, and then cast over the continents. Evidence for that? Now, it looks like you spell that. It looks like guyot, but it's, it's geo is the way you pronounce that, I'm told. And these are underwater volcanoes that have been leveled. And some of these are not small volcanoes. Some of these, have, I, I figured it out that if you had had, if that, was a, if that flat area was land surface and we could split it all up, everybody gets an acre, we'd have enough for uh, several million people. So we're talking, what force would it take to level that thing? I mean, that's no small tsunami. Um, the standard geology explanation, well, it was there for a long time, and the waves just hit it more and more, little by little, and finally got it. Well, it sure ended up pretty flat then. And so, um, let's see, step six. Now, the hot resurfaced uh, ocean bottom, now because of the ocean, is going to cool, right? The, it's going to heat the ocean, but the ocean's going to cool the basalt. And as it cools, what happens? It compresses again, right? Gets denser. And as it gets denser, it sinks again. And as it sinks, and the waters that flooded the continents now flow back into the ocean basin. Do we have evidence for that? Well, we saw those sunken guyos, right? How about these atolls also, sunken volcanoes? And, and these apparently sunk slow enough that the coral was able to keep up 
but the growth as it sank. So as the bottom of the ocean's cooling and compressing, the volcano's going down with it, right? And this is happening all over the world, and it's happening, at the, interestingly, at the same time. So what, how does that ex- be explained by slow-as-you-go, gradual changes? I don't think so. And then there's the production of the mountains. Now, as the continents are moving along, at the end, they begin to collide with the plates collide. And as they do, the front edge of the moving continents now compress because of the collision, right? And so it thickens. Now, granite is less dense than basalt. And so when you've got it thickened and it's less dense, then once it's sunk and you've got that pulling down factor is gone, now buoyancy factors kick back in and the granites put, push themselves back up, especially along the leading edge, which would correspond to what? The North American uh, Sierra Nevadas and Rockies, the Andes in South America, the Himalayas, um, you know, all the world's tallest mountains. And notice how sharp-edged these are. That suggests a lack of erosion, that these haven't been around very long. And, and geologists agree, that uh, traditional evolutionary geologists, that all these happen within the last 1% of, of Earth's history, according to them. Now, we have a different timeline than them, but we think the order of events is correct. So there we have the production of these tall mountains. And then my favorite, the Ice Age, which uh, Tim mentioned earlier. Um, Yeah, with the Ice Age, this provides the only answer, explanation for why we even have an Ice Age. See, the problem is, if you get it cold enough, first of all, how do you get it cold? You know, what changed the world's climate? Okay, but suppose it did. It got cold. Well, great. You still don't have an ice age because if you have it too cold, cold enough to form all that ice, it's too cold to evaporate water. You've got to get the water to evaporate in order to precipitate, right? So to have an ice age, you need it both hot enough and cold enough at the same time. How do you do that? Well, this does it, doesn't it? I mean, think about it. The ocean. What's the temperature like there. The bottom of the ocean was a hot basalt, right? It was just been resurfaced. And so that hot basalt heating the ocean above it uh, by computer simulation between 10 to 20 degrees Celsius average. Now you're going to have cool spots and warm spots and it's going to vary, but that's the average. Okay, so if that's, that's going to be a lot of evaporation, right? You heat the ocean by an average of 10 to 20 degrees Celsius that's a lot of evaporation. Okay, what about the coldness part? Well, we have a lot of volcanoes, right? We just resurfaced the ocean bottom. You've got these mega volcanoes we find all over the Pacific. I remember being on an island called Benga out in Fiji, and the crater of that sunken volcano was 97 miles circumference. Okay, that's enough to put 100 Mount St. Helens and jiggle them around in the crater. <laughs> These are mega volcanoes. Okay? So those volcanoes, what do they do? Like Mount St. Helens, when interrupted, it put debris in the sky that blocked sunlight, which cooled the, the world by an average of 1 to 2 degrees Celsius, that little tiny Mount St. Helens volcano, for one year. Now, what if you've got hundreds of these mega volcanoes going off? Um, you could have a lot of sunlight blockage which means a very cold continents 
but very warm ocean. Warm ocean evaporation blows inland, and you get this catastrophic dumping of ice, the Ice Age. Interestingly, this fascinates me, um, astrogeologists seem to all agree that the surface of Venus has been resurfaced very much like the Baumgartner model. Isn't that something? They can accept it for Venus, but we don't seem to see it for the Earth, even though we've got tons of evidence for it. So what do critics say? They say, not enough rain. Well, we've already explained that, right? And what does the Bible say about the flood? Then the fountains of the great deep burst open. What's the great deep in the Bible always? It's always the ocean, isn't it? So the fountains of the ocean burst open, and that's pretty much what this model tells us, right? Then the floodgates of heaven were open. And I think the order is significant. So, okay, what about the second one? Uh, not enough room in the ark for all those species, right? We've got millions of species. How do you put them all on there? Well, it's Genesis kinds we have to put there, not species, and not all of them. Air-breathing land animals. Uh, two of each kind and seven of certain selected ones, right? And the ark was no little, little um, canoe, right? By dimensions, it was about the dimensions of the, of the Queen Mary. So it was a massive ship. So I think there was room there. And there have been calculations. Some say that it does, and some people it doesn't. All right. No geological evidence. Well, I already showed you some, but I'm going to give you some more here. A, a bit of a list of things. Looking at the Grand Canyon, all these great sedimentary rocks. Okay, if all these sedimentary rocks were slowly, gradually eroded, then wouldn't you expect to find some of that debris at the bottom of the canyon? If it's falling, then it, it's going to be there at the bottom, right? It's not. There's hardly any down there. Where did it all go? Okay, that's one. Uh, the, ex the layers we see here are extensive. Today, we don't see extensive layers like this formed anywhere. The biggest things we see in layers forming today are at the base of rivers, the deltas. And then speaking of which, these layers are flat. Deltas are triangular. It's at the source, it's thick, and as you get farther out, it gets thinner, right? Triangular. This is not triangular. These are flat, and many of these layers cover a good portion of the continents. One of these layers goes into Greenland all the way into Great Britain. So these are massive layers. Where is that happening today? Um, I think the best of, one of the best ones is between these layers, you don't see drainage channels. The thought is this layer was here for millions of years, and the next layer came on millions of years. And, and so you have some of these layers 10 millions, uh, some hundreds of millions of years apart between layers, between when one was laid down and the next one. That's conventional. But if it was like that, wouldn't you have some drainage channels? I mean, even out in the desert, in a single year, you have enough rainfall to form little can uh, you know, channels, drainage channels from the rain. Even in one year's time, you have that. And yet we don't have that in any of these layers. There's no hint of it, any channels. And then uh, when Hurricane Katrina happened, you had deposits uh, of Hurricane Katrina deposits in the Gulf of Mexico. And it was a nice straight 
wine like this in a very distinct border between it and the, and the sediments that were below it. And that lasted for about five years. And by the end of five years, clams and worms and all had dug up and down through the layers so much, they completely blurred the layers from each other so you couldn't tell one layer from the other. It was a blurring, blending continuum. Do you see a blending continuum here? Or do the layers look a little bit distinct? They all look like they've been cut with a knife. They look very distinct, distinct, suggesting very little time between them. Very little time. Uh, marine fossils throughout. Okay, the top of the Grand Canyon there is a mile above sea level. Where are you getting sea creatures? Well, they say, well, the continents moved around and stuff. But wait a minute. Continents are granite. Granite is less dense than the basalt, and so it's thick and it floats. So, like a ball in the swimming pool, wherever the wind might blow that ball, isn't it still going to float? So, again, how do you get the sea creatures up there? And all over, all near the tops of all the highest mountains on Earth. Okay, so marines throughout. So, if there were a Genesis flood, and if it were global, what would you expect to find in geology? Exactly what we do find. Billions of dead things, buried in rock layers, laid down by water, all over the earth. And then we have these very, this is in the Grand Canyon also. Look how curved these rocks are. And there's um, the mountains after the flood is a movie that should be coming out any day now. And they'll highlight, they'll study these, and they're going to do analysis of that very same spot right there where it's really curved. And by uh, traditional geologists, that got bent because it must have been a lot of heat and pressure to melt it, partially melt that so you could bend it. Because right now it's really fragile. You take that and it just breaks. So it would not handle any tension at all, no more than glass. You can't really bend it at room temperature. So how did that get bent like that? Was it like the flood model that this was, it just wasn't, it all happened quickly at the end of the flood when the mountains were pushed up, and so this got bent, and it happened before the cement had dried, and so it was still soft, and so you could still bend it. Or as traditional um, geologists, evolutionary geologists would put it, this was slow heat and slow pressure over long periods of time. Well, uh, the analysis has shown this happened before they cemented. This happened quickly, catastrophically, while it was still soft. So then we finally end up with a desert in the middle of the flood. Um, in high school, I remember seeing a video about proof that the Genesis flood didn't happen. And the proof was because right in the middle of the supposed flood, we have a desert. So how could there be a desert in the middle of a flood year, right? And so that was used to mock. I mean, there was the whole class was devoted to showing us that. And so we're talking about the Coconina sandstone, which is the white band of rock there where the arrow is pointing. So it's near the top. And we look up closer here, the Coconina sandstone, we see these banded patterns. And that is, sure enough, classic sand dunes. So, oh, sand dunes, Isn't, aren't they in deserts? Yeah, but do you know what? <laughs> yeah, sand dunes are in deserts, all right. But um, if turns out, uh, this man, this is a former professor of mine, Dr. Leonard Brand, and he did a lot of work on this Coconia sandstone, 
particularly the footprints, the fossils' footprints that we find there. And he made the point, he says, yes, deserts have sand dunes sometimes, but most sand dunes on earth today are not in deserts. They're under the ocean. Ah, you just don't notice them there. And so he did analysis of those footprints there. Uh, By the way, he's Loma Linda University. And here's some of those fossil footprints. Okay, what if you had footprints out in a a desert sand dune? Are you going to get nice footprints like that? They don't form really nice, discrete toe shapes and things. It has to be wet for that. Okay? And besides that, he noticed, I wish I had good models from him, but um, a lot of times the footprints, instead of going straight, all the footprints, by the way, were going up the sand dune. No exceptions. Every one of them. And there were lots of them. Not only were they going up, but some of them were going, while facing up, were going diagonal. Wait a minute. If you're facing way, shouldn't you be going that way? Well, he reasoned that what was happening is these were underwater, and the current was washing them one way. He's trying to get escape, go up the sand dune, but the water's carrying them sideways, giving this diagonal pattern. And in one case, he saw where they said the full footprint, and then just the front of the footprint, and just the toes, and then it disappears. And then 150 feet away, the next sand dune, you find the same footprints. And he continues his effort to try to escape. Apparently, the water picked him up and carried him. Does that happen in the desert sand dune? Think not. So, um, never mind the, the desert in the middle of the flood. So, to summarize, this is the evidence I just showed you. We had scripture suggesting a, glo- a global flood. Historical flood traditions. And then we have successful computer modeling by Baumgartner. Ocean floor youthfulness. Mid-ocean mountain ranges. The sunken seafloor. The flattened geos. The atolls. Recent mountain formation. It explains the ice age. Uh, Venus resurfaced. Lack of erosion debris at the bottom of of things like the Grand Canyon. Continent-wide strata, flat strata boundaries, no bioturbation, no canal, uh, channels, uh, distinct strata layering, the marine fossil abundance, the strata folding, and all layers deposited by water. So what does this all mean? Well, if this is count is true, and the there was a global flood, and if it counts for most of these layers, and I certainly believe it does, then all of a sudden those, uh, those rheometric dates that we have of millions of years between these layers, two billion years at the bottom layer up to the top of, uh, I forget, 160 million years come next Tuesday. <laughs> so if those dates be true, well, if the flood is true, then all that, all that time then gets compressed into a year, doesn't it? And if it gets compressed to the year, then boom, there goes the stronghold of radioisotope dating methods, that's the, those that suggest an ancient time. You know, some of them suggest a recent time, but we don't hear about those in textbooks. Um, and then the, the idea of uniformitarian geology, that the present is the key to the past, is out the window. No, it's the past that's key to understanding the present. It's the past knowing about a Genesis flood that helps us understand the present. And finally, if that's true, then all that time for evolution to happen, 
that's the stronghold on the left here, there's no time for it. And so it's, it, go, it goes too. So if this, with this Genesis flood, the globalness of the Genesis flood, all these ideas rise, stand or fall. You know, if it's not true, then we have the, the scripture refuted, right? So we live and die on this hill. And that also means the many liberal interpretations of the, uh, of the creation account. Okay, I've listed a bunch of them here. These are major ones. Every one of these are efforts to accommodate deep time, you know, millions of years, with a, with a biblical account. Well, if you're going to have millions of years, then these layers of rocks have to be gradual, which means you can't have a, genesis, a global Genesis flood. So every one of these models argue that, no, there, either there was no flood, or if there was a flood, it was local. And, you know, those, those Mideastern people kind of exaggerate things a lot. You know, that, that kind of approach. But that's not what we see. And so all of these, you, in, in one fell swoop, they've been all eliminated. And so they're my sources. They're most, in this case, most of my sources were these people, uh, Dr. Steve Austin and, and especially Dr. John Baumgartner. So with that, that's the end. Thank you very much. I know that uh, uh, Dr. Osborne cut ruthlessly to get down to those basics he just gave us, so I'm sure he would love to interact with you more about some of those things. Okay, so as we wrap this up, um, just very quickly, first of all, realize we don't, what we're not trying to say here the last two weekends is that science proves the Bible is true. Um, we don't need science to, to prove the truthfulness of what God, is, God has said. However, if you have maybe felt like that if you're going to believe what the Bible says, you have to basically plug your ears and ignore science completely and just keep your head stuck in the sand, that is not at all true. There are many, many uh, scientists who love God's Word very much and take science very seriously. And you've seen just some samples of that um, from all sorts of different types of, of science um, you know, from astronomy to, to biology to paleontology and, and so forth that we've seen the last two Sundays. Um, so that's very important. And then as we finish, I just want to make sure we say you, you might have questions, you might have things you're wrestling with, and we'd love to keep talking about that. But there's also another possibility, and that is that we might come away with a little bit of a smug sense of, well, we're right. I would just say, please remember that if the Bible is true about what it says about creation, then the most important thing we can do with that is consider our relationship with the Creator and know Him through Jesus Christ and seek Him and walk with Him and love Him. To say, well, I'm right and those whoever is wrong about this and then leave the Bible on the shelf and leave God on the shelf of our life is to miss the whole point entirely. So let us love and worship the Creator through Jesus Christ. Thank you, men, for your service to us in these things. Father, we commit ourselves now wanting to humble ourselves before the mighty hand of God. And then, because you provided a Savior, we want to draw near to you through Jesus Christ. 
So may that be so for each of our hearts. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.